0: Hey, everyone. This is Nick, the producer.
1: And I'm Merritt the
0: host of this show. We're coming to you uh, before the intro music of this episode uh, with a little message about the, uh, the real world, a friend of ours uh, who we'd like your help supporting.
1: Yeah, so her name is Emerald, and you've probably seen her tweets because they're extremely good, and she's just been kind of a prolific writer and someone who i think brings a lot of humor and like warmth into people's lives via her twitter presence and she needs some money for medical care
0: yeah so um as we all know the medical system in the united states is designed intentionally to harm and kill people especially poor people but also other marginalized people um Emerald needs this medical care, and she can't get it without paying a bunch of money. Um, So she is fundraising on the internet to raise that money. Uh, And so uh, to help her out, Merritt put out a call on Twitter. I
1: did. Um, And what I offered was that anyone who donated some money to Emerald's campaign could have a message read on the air. and. We're so grateful that a bunch of people did uh, did actually donate that money and let us know, but uh, only one person actually wanted a message read on the air. Everyone else was kind of just content with uh, with having done that.
0: So uh, we have this one message to read to you. This comes from Soriwa Himitsu, who is a prolific member of the Stamine Discord, a friend of the show, uh, and it is the following assonance Associates is proud to announce its new erotic film, Switchy Witches. Switch which witch gets the switch? If you love their past movies like Nude Canoe Canoodling, so- <laughs> you bitch. Go ahead, sorry.
1: <laughs> it's just very funny, and it's designed to be. So I think it's okay that I'm laughing.
0: If you love their past movies like Nude Canoe Canoodling and Sephardic Fart Party, you're sure to love it. Check out all their films at assonance.associates. Now, that's a real website, but these are not real films. Uh, (laughs) She just uh, wanted to have a message for us to read. So she put together this fake erotica uh, website, which also holds a really great pro-sex worker message on it. Uh, you're welcome to go to that website. There are no films for you to buy or support. But we also want to thank some other people that we know donated specifically because of our messages, uh, at underscore Vera Vane. Thank you so much. And also uh, people who didn't want to be known by their Twitter handles, but B, Mia, and Sophie, thank you so much for donating.
1: Yeah, we really appreciate it. Um, and, you know, check out Emerald's campaign and toss in a few dollars if you can and if not you know RTs are free um so go over and take a look at that and we really appreciate anything you might be able to do for our really good friend emerald
0: that's it uh thanks for taking the time to listen to this message about our friend and enjoy the show bye-bye
1: Okay. (laughs) Don't sound so enthusiastic. I'm really not. um... Well, it's a little difficult to be. um, But (laughs) can I offer you an egg in these trying times? Yes. Well, I'm going to reach through the microphone like a Looney Tunes character and offer you a delicious egg, which um, I do not have here because (laughs) I don't eat eggs when I'm at home.
2: Eggs are the only thing I eat
1: when I'm at home. See I suspect that I should eat them but I am exceptionally lazy like it's honestly unreal um I mostly I eat like peanut butter and toast um because that's sort of like my my go-to like p- protein fiber sort of combo that I need as a vegetarian there's there's not really any protein in peanut butter though is there there is it's all protein because i eat the kind that's just peanuts none of this uh you know um icing sugar and stuff like that at most it has like some palm oil and a tiny bit of salt in it but usually i just get the one that's just ground up peanuts in a paste that's delicious that does sound delicious I do love um, it. I love it. I can it.
2: see. I can see why you're you're passing off your imaginary eggs to me, but I will accept this because I love it. <laughs> What's your favorite kind of egg?
1: I mean, not kind like animal, but kind like well, also animal. Um, but I was thinking actually, like prep mode of preparation. Uh, I mean, I like to eat them over ramen because I'm disgusting. Interesting. So is that like a hard boil, so, and you cut it in half? Um,
2: no, I usually just. Soft boil them in the water. I just boil them in the water with the ramen. Oh. And then hopefully they cook the way that I want them to and they have a slightly runny yolk and they don't poison me.
1: <laughs> um, you don't want salmonella. No. You know? No, one doesn't. But... Did you grow up hearing about salmonella all the time? Like, you can't eat raw cookie dough because you'll get salmonella. Oh, constantly. Yeah, that was a thing that I think our parents told us and I never really believed it until. Um, a friend of mine in high school, um, who I still know, did get salmonella at one point, but I don't think it was from cookie dough. I think it was from meat. Hmm. But it's not fun. It's really bad.
2: Yeah. It's it, it's just one of the many ways that living your ordinary life can kill you. Suddenly.
1: Oh, it can't. Uh, it won't guess... kill you. You'll just be vomiting for a while. <laughs> well, not. I mean, not from
2: salmon, salmonella, but... There's other kinds of food poisoning you can get.
1: Oh, sure. Yeah, Uh, we could talk about all the kinds of poisons and all the things that can poison you, but we would be here all night. You know, there's (laughs) when I was a kid, I was really paranoid about really unlikely scenarios. Um, I'm not really sure why, but one of them, I definitely read about um, a KGB assassination of someone with a ricin-tipped umbrella. And What? Yeah, that was a thing the KGB did. Um I believe it. I think <laughs> Just... I could be wrong. I'm pretty sure. But I was really really afraid of that because I'm like umbrellas are ever like guns. Like you can see a gun coming, right? But like an umbrella, anyone could have an umbrella. So that was one of my things. I was also scared of tornadoes, um of rabid bats and um uh, what else? you know, all kinds of stuff. What about you? Childhood fears? Childhood fears.
2: I was convinced that I was going to... Oh, no, I told you this story. I was convinced that I was going to develop schizophrenia. Um,
1: oh, God. That that's a real... Childhood that's fear. a real fear, though. That's not like rabid paths. That's horrifying. Was but there... it's just because I,
2: I didn't understand how heredity or genetics worked I knew that my grandmother was schizophrenic and I knew that schizophrenia was hereditary sure but like I wasn't yet at the age where I was like making Punnett squares or something okay so you hadn't you
1: hadn't read your Mendel
2: yet no I had not
1: okay yeah you were still you still thought it was like uh, that guy who was like oh if a giraffe reaches up higher um his son's neck will be longer right Lamarck yes thank you (laughs) No problem. Yeah, I was a Lamarckian
2: Mm -hmm. for a while. We all
1: have to go through that phase as teens, you know, we have to rebel against our Darwinian parents (laughs) or our, you know, Christian parents and just believe that if you stretch really tall to get those (laughs) nice plates at the top of the shelves, then it's going to be that much easier for your progeny to do that because they'll have those, they'll be basically Mr. Incredible. They'll have those stretchy arms. I'm not sure. I disbelieve that even at this point. No, I think it's true. Right. I think it's science. I think the <laughs> science is out on whether it's, um, you know, no one really knows.
2: Yeah, and how this stuff works. Yeah, so science—that was another thing to be afraid of. Oh, how so? I think mostly in the sense that it was—it was just framed as something my family didn't do. Mm. I don't think I. I don't think I fully – well, I don't think I fully engaged with, like, fact-based reality until I was in my 20s, possibly. Mm. <laughs> or, like, um, college, possibly, where I, I realized, oh, no, it's, this is just a way of studying the world. <laughs> it's not an academic subject that you learn in school for grades. And right. And it's actually relevant to my life. Mm -hmm. Which I'm not sure why I was convinced it was not. but
1: Well, that's true of like everything in schools, right? Everything is like framed as just, despite what teachers say about like, you'll need to know math because they'll have to do your tips. And it's like, we've all got calculators now. No one does math anymore except mathematicians. But like, aside from that, it was all very much like arcane, like, okay, we're mixing these two chemicals to do... What exactly? I mean, what is the right. purpose of this? Um, so to get
2: into Harvard. the purpose of everything is to get into Harvard. Mm, um, mm, if you mm-hmm, go to prep mm-hmm. school in New England.
1: interesting. Um, that was never really on but... the um the horizon for me. not I mean, I did apply to Harvard oh, for grad either. school. I did apply there. Um, I did not get in um, as you are no doubt aware. But uh, yeah, I I think I applied to all of the, I spent like a thousand dollars on grad school applications, um, for some reason. Yeah, I know. It was real stupid of me. Um, but yeah, I was just like, no, I got to apply to, you you know, UCLA, UCB, um, basically all the UCs, Harvard, Chicago, uh, didn't. Didn't get into any of those guys, but that was okay. Because I got into a school that, while pretty awful in many senses, at least got me to Seattle, which was a beautiful city at the time and I guess still is, but is um increasingly unlivable.
2: It's still beautiful. It's still beautiful, I, my, yeah. My in laws live in Seattle. Yes, that's I love right. going there. It's like Disney World for me. I don't know. I get very excited because i've- am convinced that they're like because I don't live there and it's so far away, and my only reference point for it is holidays. Uh-huh. I just think of it as a magical place where there just aren't problems.
1: Oh, like, yeah, I know famously, it's... Seattle doesn't have any problems it It doesn't though no one gets murdered. there's no crime. there's no. Um, you know, real estate issues.
2: It's That's great. what I choose to believe.
1: Yeah. I mean, why not? As a person
2: who's been there at least three times. But
1: that is cool when you have a place that basically you just go there for special occasions and you do definitely uh, get different associations with it. like for me, that was kind of true of New York for a while because I only really ever came here uh, on vacations or like four brief periods of time and you start to like develop a relationship with it like oh cool we're going to basically disney like we're going to go on the equivalent of the brer rabbit log ride or whatever um fun
2: (laughs) and how do you feel like that's changed now that you live here
1: yeah um well there's definitely less pressure to um to do things i was actually just rereading um eb white's this is new york or here is new york i think here is new New york yeah Yeah. Yeah. and um you know he talks about how even then like living in new york uh there's the sense of all these things happening and you get to choose what to participate in and what not to and when you are living here the city does this thing of like insulating you from uh from all these things happening and um It sort of does that because if it didn't, no one would be able to live here. You just lose your mind. Um, And definitely, like, getting that feeling has been part of it. Um, As it, you know, like, I think when you live anywhere, it just becomes more of, like, a place uh, that, you know, is just, like, in some ways a normal place. But I don't think it's ever really lost that magic for me. Like, at times it's um, maybe faded a little bit or i've had to like do something to rediscover it but it's i feel like it's always around that corner you know right i feel that way too well
2: i think because i i always love well as long as i've lived in new york i've really loved it and then i lived in the bay area for 5 years all of which i spent missing new york desperately oh. so even though i've i've now been back for as long as i was away and yet, I constantly think of New York in terms of, "Oh, thank God, I'm back here." <laughs>
1: like, even though, even though I've been back for five years, it's not like I don't think. Did I know that you had lived in the Bay Area? Was that for school? Yeah, I I was in
2: a PhD program at UC Berkeley for a
1: while. Oh, right. Yeah, um, but I I escaped. You escaped. Yeah.
2: <laughs> and also. Good. Pretty much everyone I knew who lived in New York immediately before starting grad school in the English department at Berkeley ended up moving back to New York, as far as I know. I'm sure there's people I don't know who did not move back, but I feel it's a very difficult transition to make, I think.
1: The cross-coast one?
2: cross Well, maybe not cross-coast, but New York to the East Bay specifically seems very challenging hmm. there were just such different places
1: how what in what mm-hmm. i think i know some of them but how do you characterize the differences
2: um people don't make jokes in the east bay
1: <laughs> <laughs> really
2: ever huh. i'm actually a much less sarcastic person than i was in my early 20s because when i first arrived in the east bay and i spoke entirely in sarcasm. Everyone just took everything I said literally. Oh, and it, it it was a huge problem for me. <laughs> I just sort of had to like really tone down the irony and I never quite got back up to that level, uh, which is probably healthy. But yeah. Um, I feel like it's an, it's a much narrower spectrum of people. I feel like New York has... Many more categories of different people, and even mm. though a lot of those people are terrible, it's all part of the the kaleidoscope of life in the metropolis. <laughs> right? Yeah. Uh, and I, I just you know the the East Bay is well, the Bay Area is a lot more homogeneous in many ways. The East Bay, especially if you're living in a college town, is extremely mm. homogeneous. Right? If yeah. You live in Ber- like Berkeley and the the berkeley ish parts of Oakland, uh-huh um, are just and those people and people are great, people are fantastic. It's a wonderful place. I didn't belong there <laughs> mm. and yeah it's it's a little bit strange to me now to be um, yeah, working at a company that is based in the Bay Area through their New York office and like, like having to sometimes travel back and forth from there for work and being affiliated with a completely different, like a completely different sector of the area than I ever connected to while I was living there is a little bit strange.
1: Mm, Yeah. Um, That kind of relationship to a place from a distance is really odd. Right. It's like, I suddenly have a different relationship with
2: this place where I used to live for five years mm. that has almost no overlap with any, with any of my experiences while I was living there. Huh. I don't know. Do you have, is there a place like that for you? Do you feel like your relationship with a city has changed
1: in that way? Hmm. I mean, I guess Seattle, kind of is like that for me. I lived there for four years and I haven't been there now in I think three, um, maybe no two. uh. And I don't know when I'll be back next. And it's Seattle is a really weird one for me because um, right after I moved, a lot of my friends were in the process of moving there. And so the last time I went, I visited all of my friends who live there now. And it's it's kind of odd to have to have that relationship now where it's where I go to see um, a lot of my friends rather than sort of the place that I live. And it it's not really my home anymore. Uh, I, I think having that kind of thing change uh, is a really unusual experience. Letting go of somewhere like that, you know?
2: Yeah. That's. That's very difficult. Mm. Yeah. I was never able to let go of New York that way. Mm. So, yeah. I don't know.
1: <laughs> I think people have a hard time letting go of New York. I don't know. That, the book, and it's really more of an essay, is um, actually kind of one of my favorite books. Um, right. I I don't know. Just like the way that he describes the city is is really compelling. And I was thinking about today, like, you know, I made a tweet about like, how everyone wishes they lived in the New York of before their time. Um, right. And uh, <laughs> like it's in, you know, in like 20 years, people are going to be talking about, Oh, I wish i lived in New York in the 2010s. It was so cool. Uh, which is like really <laughs> fun. Like I had a conversation at our Halloween party this past Saturday about that. And it was so funny. Cause it was like, yeah, I guess that's true. People, you know, like even me, like, of course I romanticized the seventies and like earlier times when it was possible to live here but even like the you know like the 2000s it's like oh you have like the garage rock revival you've got like the club scene there's all this stuff happening um and that was only like 15 years ago and then there are going to be people really soon who lament not having moved here or lived here sooner which is a real trip to me
2: yeah exactly that's part of the experience of being in new york is that you will you either ha- already have lived here long enough to complain about how your favorite things are gone or you will very soon
1: mhm mhm
2: and it's very easy to do that because everything that's wonderful is slowly disappearing from manhattan so <sighs> yeah or already has
1: disappeared in many cases
2: but but there's always more things that can go
1: away, is what I'm saying. Mm, <laughs> there's an indefinite number of things. There's an
2: indefinite number of things. And um, it's it's fine. It'll be great. You'll be able to talk about how you were here. And you can just tell them fabulous stories about how incredible New York was in the 2010s. And they <laughs> won't have been here, so they'll believe
1: you. Yeah. God, you can tell. Just make Things up whole cloth.
2: Naomi likes to tell me stories about how amazing New York was in the 90s when websites paid writers a dollar a word.
1: <laughs> yes, I have heard some of these stories, and I <laughs> ugh yeah. Um actually it's funny because the introduction to um to Here is New York is by uh i think white's nephew i would have to check it but and he talks about how like the the essay was originally written in the context of like the trap the post-war travel boom when magazines were just like paying writers to go to france and just like write an essay about being a degenerate on the margins of society um and you know just like you'd live in a hotel for like a few weeks and just be writing for like vanity fair or something ridiculous and it's like I talked a lot about how the modern equivalent of that is when, like, Casper pays you to write for their sleep magazine about, (laughs) I don't know, about (laughs) sleeping on a train or something. (sighs) Why do
2: all of these huge companies want magazines now? I'm confused. There was a YouTube magazine. Really? I didn't know that. A pair, it was a one-off. I think they made they had some. They felt like they weren't. They they needed to bring their marketing to the next level, and they thought, you know, what everyone really wishes YouTube was a print magazine. <laughs>
1: <laughs> That's the most like, bass awkward thing I have ever heard i love being able to give videos whenever i want about anything but what i would really love is for a a physical object that i would have to seek out from a (laughs) fucking drugstore with a select amount of content that doesn't move as just static images unless it's like they invented the magazines from harry potter where like the pictures moved and like were those were they like actually the people or were they just like pictures coming to life with magic and had no real will of their own i was never really clear on that
2: my understanding was always that it was actually the people and that made it sort of hellish and like really disturbing that's so maybe that's horrible that's, that's like some maybe Panopticon shit. To- <laughs> yeah maybe i just took it to a dark place but they would talk about the picture's I think when they talk about the, the characters in the pictures would like go and visit each other and go do various things. They had little, there were like little bits of people's essence trapped in the photos. It's like, it really did capture your soul. Yeah, I don't think we ever really explored the the long-term effects of these kinds of cameras and pictures in the wizarding world. I mean, like, does it have like a long? do you like, Does it cause, like, deterioration or
1: degeneration? Did they ever commission a longitudinal study with, like, careful data gathering on, like, the long-term effects of having your picture taken by cameras that, like, remove a, a sliver of your soul to make a newspaper slightly more interesting? Like, if that happened a certain amount of times, would your essence just be split out over so many papers that you would just cease to exist as a unified human being? Yeah, I feel I. I don't think that they would. I think that they're,
2: you know, the Wizarding world is very mired in tradition. The, I I'm not sure they've really fully embraced data.
1: No, and you know these are the questions that I wish in a post Harry Potter ending world that we could answer. Not what is being a werewolf metaphor for today or last week, not which characters were secretly meant to be gay, but they aren't textually, but it's cool to be able to say that they are because then I get, you know, bonus points for it as the author of Harry Potter. I don't care about that stuff. I want to know. I want to have the Frank Herbert version of Harry Potter, which explores all of like the least human details of this world and talks about just like the soil quality around Hogwarts for like yes. fifty pages. Just give me <laughs> yes. give me like I want the next genre of like like you know how there were for a while there were those like and zombies books like Pride and Prejudice and Zombies, War and Peace yes. and Zombies, which was a terrible, terrible fad. I want the next one to be like best selling books written by other best-selling authors and i'm sure this has been a thing already but like the first one should be harry potter written by frank herbert and then dune written by um you know her what her name how do i remember frank herbert but not jk R- rowling Ralling. i kept thinking hp lovecraft that's not right but also by, but also she's harry potter written by him it would be a lot more racist than it already is <laughs> we're so we allowed
2: to bring dead authors into this fad now we're just
1: oh yeah no I, I mean I don't think right. these these authors are you know actually writing these books we're just like someone is writing them oh, as oh. if they were this author writing another author's
2: yes book. okay well that makes it much more interesting
1: yes too. what do you got if it's just, what, if it's what it's would
2: just be people your
1: okay wait actually let's <laughs> name is... authors and then we have to figure we have to decide what would be the the best author to rewrite that book
2: okay
1: okay um wolf hall well i was just thinking hillary mattel and i was like i knew you're gonna go to wolf hall also how excited are you for like the final book in that series to come out because i think it's supposed to come out next year
2: i think it's supposed to i actually i haven't read the second one because i think i was upset that they weren't french
1: um Oh because I, I you like, love the uh the other one, the I, other book.
2: I love A Place of Greater Safety. Right, which I, I still it. have
1: to read. I had a huge copy of it, but I think I may have gotten rid of it when I moved to New York when I was living in Toronto briefly. Oh. No, um, no. I know. I need to pick up another coffee um cuz that's the one about uh is it Robespierre and someone else are like have homoerotic tension.
2: Yes, the the French Revolution happened because um Danton and Cam- and Camille Desmoulins and Robespierre were all gay for each other. Apparently.
1: <laughs> That's how it happens. It's
2: it's it's very French and it's very smart. I mean, and, she's great. I love her. And there's like passages about Robespierre's eating habits, which. <laughs> are identical to the eating habits of the autobiographical Hillary Mankell character in, oh, I'm blanking on it. What's the law school book?
1: Oh,
2: I don't um, know. It, it was the first book that she actually published. It, um, but she, she wrote a book that she wrote A Place of Greater Safety and she was having a hard time finding somebody to publish an eight hundred page novel about how everyone was gay for each, gay for each other. So she decided that she would be a good literary fiction author and write, um, um like, write a semi autobiographical book about a lost scu- book about a lost student. Who's has like some superficial similarities to herself, but is the but the book is also in conversation with Muriel Sparks, the girls of smaller means. Uh, and published that in sketch. And then that was successful. And she published her other book, but wrote in which Robespierre yeah, Robespierre and the main character of this law school book are both like will both go through weird anorexic phases where they only eat oranges. Huh. That's that's what I know about. Henry well, Mankell. what
1: I know about oranges. <laughs> yes. Is that what I've heard? Um, is that they're not the only fruit.
2: I have heard that as well.
1: <laughs> <laughs> uh, there's a bunch of others. There's, you got, um, you got kiwis. You've got who? Kiwis. That's about it, actually. Oh, oranges kiwis. and kiwis are the two. Um, what if, okay, so Jeanette Winterson could potentially rewrite uh wolf hall that could be interesting um what about if evelyn Waugh did wolf hall because he was catholic and he boy did he not like uh anglicanism (laughs) i can see that i think it would be a much less sympathetic portrayal but it would be funny in a very different way probably do you like him I've actually
2: read him.
1: <gasps> really? No, I'm terrible. Oh, no, you're not terrible. I haven't read like anything, but I just happen to, you know, have been terribly sick one winter and have just read the entire Sword of Honor trilogy. And <sighs> there's some of my favorite books. Evelyn Waugh was kind of an asshole, like in a lot of ways, uh, like near the end of his life, especially he became kind of a bad man. But the sort of honor books are so funny and so good.
2: I, okay. I will, I will check them out. I will add them to a long pile. of. <laughs>
1: yeah. The pile. I don't know. Mm-hmm. I have like, pile. I've just abandoned all sense of like order when it comes to the pile. And like, I said on Goodreads, apparently that I was going to read 50 books this year. That's not going to happen. And I'm not going to do that thing of like, just reading small books to try and do it. Instead. I'm just like, Trying, trying to make more time for reading, trying to go back to reading on the train instead of, like, looking at my phone. Um, and uh, I've been doing a little more. I've written, been reading a fair bit in the past few days, past few weeks.
2: And what have you been reading?
1: I have been reading – well, I picked up The Price of Salt again after a, like, five-month hiatus because I started reading it right before I went through a – um. A period of my life in which I was not particularly interested in reading uh, lesbian love stories. Uh, But I've picked it up again, and it's very good. They just had sex for the first time, and it was very good. It was very well written. Um, And I'm also – I started reading a book called Felt in the Jaw, which uh, is a collection of uh, short stories about queer women – that was written by uh, Kristen Arnott, who is just someone I think I found on Twitter when I started tweeting, like, you know, occasionally I'll tweet like, what's something you've done recently that you're proud of? And this person, Kristen Arnott, was like, oh, I published this book. And so I was like, oh, it's about queer—it's short, short stories about queer women. Like, thank you. Yes, please. Um, and I it was sitting on my nightstand for months and I finally picked it up and was like, oh, yeah, this is good. Um, and I guess the last thing is, you know, uh, Junji Ito. Oh, wait, this is the Frankenstein comic. Uh, I don't, I, he may have done a Frankenstein thing. He does like a lot of horror, but the one that I read yesterday was, um, his cat diary book. Oh, cool. I don't know that. It's just basically like he moves in with his fiance and they have two cats and his, like, he's struggling to like adapt to life with them. and he uses his horror sensibilities so well and it's like incredibly funny like i very rarely laugh aloud at books but i was like losing my mind just because he uses his like the ways that he draws really unsettling images and horror to just draw these cats looking like completely ridiculous and like upsetting and it's very very good so i guess those are the things that i'm i'm working on right now how about you oh my gosh so many? Um, so many. Uh, I, I'm actually...
2: Embar- kind of embarrassingly, I'm reading about the Triangle Shirtwaist Fire. Oh. Uh, because I finally went to the Tenement Museum and, and their gift shop is entirely full of books about the terrible, painful lives of people who lived in New York in the early 20th century. And I... I'm a sucker for books in which everyone dies. <laughs> and a, a nonfiction book about the triangle shirtwaist fire is a great way to scratch that itch. Mm-hmm, I think mm-hmm. there's, I, I'm i still at the point where the factory owners are bringing Catholic priests onto the floor to tell the Italian girls that they will go to hell if they go on strike with the Jewish textile workers. Um which is a, apparently a thing that happened during the textile strikes just in an attempt to split people up along ethnic lines, they would like bring in religious leaders and tell people they would go to hell. Mm. Um, but I think there should be a good, like 200 pages of various stories about people who survived or almost died or actually did die. And, I mean, the thing is, I live in an apartment that's about a hundred years old,
1: mm-hmm.
2: and I love my apartment. It's the kind of place I always wanted to live. And now that I've been to the tenement museum, I look around and I think, oh, right this this was a tenement. This this is this is the ex- this looks exactly like those apartments that I was in in lower manhattan right it's the exact same layout it's the exact same kitchen. i have like the original kitchen cabinets it's it's the same kitchen it's <laughs> I'm like... um so now i just try not to think about that when i look at one of my like better adulting achievements and think about how it's actually just a place where people would like live in extreme
1: poverty. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. That, that got very, that got no, no, that's like, that's super real. I've never been there. Would you recommend it? The Tenement museum?
2: Uh, I thought it was fun. It's, if you have a choice between going to an art museum and going to the tenement museum, I would maybe suggest an art museum because you are someone – you seem like someone who enjoys art and culture.
1: I love art. But, I love
2: um, –
1: yeah, I love all of it, all that stuff. But you if, know? You have,
2: if you have visiting family or friends who want to go to the tenement museum, it's, it's a good time.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, well, my mother is coming to visit. In December. So maybe, I mean, I don't know. She might want to go to that. That might be her thing. Who knows? Yes.
2: It's a great place to go with your mother. <laughs> that is, that is in fact, when where I went to the Tiananmen Museum. <laughs> oh. So, so, yeah. Interesting.
1: It's good. It's a good time. History is good. History? Well, I mean, it's good to know. It's often bad you still gotta know it or you're gonna repeat it maybe
2: well you're going to repeat it whether you know it or not oh no um yes oh yes really yeah oh jeez. it turns out that knowing history doesn't actually actually preserve you from repeating it it just makes you a more sophisticated observer of what's happening around you because if like suggesting that like that you can avoid repeating history by studying history, vastly overestimates our own abilities as individuals. Mm. There's mm-hmm. there's really not so much that one person can do to affect history. You can you can affect it, but you're not going to stop it from repeating itself by yourself.
1: Right. Well, yeah, on your own. No, probably right. not. It <laughs> does seem unlikely. You know, you need. Um everyone needs to learn history. I don't know. Did you ever read um any there's like a bunch of, of good books about how terrible the state of like history education is in the United States and has been forever, basically. I think like Lies My Teacher Told Me was a really good one. Right. Um obviously like Howard Zinn, but it's like right. really uh, shocking. And also like when I think back to uh growing up in Canada, like our history education wasn't much better there it was still basically the same idea of like learn dates and facts that don't seem to have any relevance it's like taught from a very nationalistic perspective Um, tragedies are always framed as like well at best framed as like well it was bad but we had to do it you know
2: right i mean the thing has been fascinating fascinating is maybe not the word but the thing i've I've been obsessing over lately is the amount of people on like on the right who consume a lot of alt-right media who are always eager to con to compare like people on the left to hitler and the nazis like up to and including memes that go there are memes going around saying oh yeah george soros was uh, was in the ss there's people who really believe that.
1: Yeah, of course there are.
2: And, and like, to do that, obviously, you have to have no conception of what – you have to have no conception whatsoever of like what the Nazis actually were or did. And it's this idea that they've been gutted of all specificity and just turned into this symbol. That's – I mean, when I was at Miriam – we talked about the fact that the definition of fascism was number one in our lookups for many, many months after Trump got elected. And there were a bunch of reasons for that. But one of the biggest ones was because r- people on the right wing were upset that some dictionaries define fascism as a right wing movement. <laughs> and they found that, yeah, and they found that biased. And they were passing around the Merriam Webster definition, which Merriam Webster does not refer to fascism as right-wing because they might offend somebody. Oh
1: my so God. So they have,
2: they have a very inoffensive definition of fascism that does not use the word right-wing. Oh my And God. people on the right wing were passing it around saying, see, see, this is the real definition of fascism. Don't look at those other dictionaries. Def- de- <laughs> <laughs> that was a long rant, but... Uh, rank I hate it. it. Thanks. It's- yeah, so I... Like i do you think this is something history education can fix because it's-
1: I'm sure history professors would say yes, um I don't know, you know it's like a very difficult question, and I'm far from equipped to answer it um I mean, I think it certainly could be better, <laughs> and it would go some way towards dealing with that stuff obviously i don't think that just like more education is the answer um to like dismantling these like complex systems of power that uh lead people to believe these things but it certainly would be a step yeah i
2: i don't know
1: how how to make
2: people think i know how to (laughs) I, i i know how to teach people to write Right? Like, I used to teach freshman comp. Like, I know how to try to teach people to come up with a thesis and make an argument and follow that through to a logical conclusion. Right. But I don't know how to make them want to do that.
1: Yeah. It's very difficult. It is. Um, Having been a teacher myself, like, it's tough to, uh, yeah, to be able to do it. Like, like, and also, I don't know, you're, if you're teaching college, then, like, you're dealing with the like aftermath of however many years of the like awful education system already. And at, at that point it's like, well, is it still possible to like inculcate those kinds of values or no?
2: I don't know. What do you think the answer is?
1: <laughs> Turning it back fix on me. Everything, huh?
2: Mer- fix everything, Merit. <sighs> everything. Well, no, because I like, I mean, when I, I when I think about, How I learned these things—it's mostly from culture of personality, right? I saw people who I thought were were funny and clever and good writers, and they would point out, and they they would like criticize other people for being in in unable to follow a thought to its logical conclusion. And I would think, oh, okay, I want to be a smart person. I have to figure out how to like how to develop these analytical skills. And I also read. fuck ton of books which just teach you that without even meaning to mm-hmm. um, like just sort of teach that skill without even meaning to
1: I I don't know yeah I think to some extent it's like just like luck right like for me I guess I had a really great Uh, I had a really great high school teacher. I had a few really great high school teachers. I just happened to get lucky. I had a really great philosophy teacher who happened to be a lesbian who worked as a riveter, um, or volunteered, volunteered as an airplane restoration riveter in her off time. So like, could you be any more stereotypical? Um, I had a really great economics and philosophy teacher. And then I had a really amazing English teacher as well. And like, I took away from that just a lot of like, oh yeah, no, it's like important to like, I mean, I was an asshole, but, like, at least I was on the track to, like, figuring out, like, how to think through things, like, logically or to, like, be open to different arguments. Um, And I think a lot of people who do that, the problem is you go from being one kind of asshole to another. You go from being one who's just, like, totally ignorant and unwilling to, like, consider anything, any, like, evidence. And when you go to the other, you start going around yelling about logical fallacies at people but if you can get if you can push through that phase then uh then I think that's how you sort of become a well-rounded person who is like able to articulate your ideas and defend them and um you know it's like yeah and that's how you become I mean, that's, like, probably the whole idea of, like, classical liberal education, right, which is, like, flawed in a lot of ways, but not irredeemable, I don't think. Um, Like, I think the – some of those ideas there are good ones, and, like, a lot of the problems are, like, who's been given access to that and in what conditions it's been taught. Um, But I don't know. I think those things are, like, basically good. (laughs) Yes. You agree?
2: I agree. I agree. We can stop wringing our hands about the world now. I'm sorry.
1: (laughs) Don't be sorry. This is what's going on. This is a time capsule of of the world right now. This podcast, when people dig it up after I bury it (laughs) in a box, um, they'll find it and listen to it on their zooms because that's what we'll all use in the future. Uh, Mm -hmm. And they'll be like, oh, wow, this is an important document of, of history. Um, but one really quick way to get out of this, if you would like an exit strategy is (laughs) we could move on to the only segment that we do on the show. Sure. that segment is called get
0: racked.
1: And this is a segment where we recommend things. Um, and those things can be whatever we want and, I like to leave it up to the guests as to whether they would like to go first or would like me to go first.
2: Um, if Would you mind going first? I
1: would love to. So I'm going to recommend something that I don't know if I ever have. Maybe I think I have recommended something in this vein before, but I'm going to recommend getting a fainting couch. And yes! you, might, you might look at me and say, look at me, through the medium of audio and say, but Merritt, fainting couches are for rich dowagers and for Victorian ladies getting pelvic massages to cure their hysteria. Um, And I would say to you, it is for those people, but no longer is it confined to the strata of society because I got a fainting couch on Craigslist for less than $100. Granted, it is made, what? Of, it is made of microfiber. It's not you know, leather or anything. But we now have a fainting couch, or if you prefer a chaise longue, um, which is apparently the actual name. I always thought it was chaise lounge, which is how they say it in the States. But in the French, it's a long chair. And oh my God, is it the nicest thing to sit on? Um, Because you just lie back and it perfectly just like raises your your shoulders and your back and it's so fucking comfortable and you feel so great, so cool. Like just having a glass of wine reading a book on that baby. It's like uh-huh. you're really having a glass of wine and reading a book. Um and if you can find one and if you have space in your apartment, I would highly highly recommend it um because yeah, you can I this one's probably not going to last forever. It's not like a quality piece of furniture but it looks fine and it also has storage underneath the seat that you can pull up which is really Ooh. cool so that's my thing for this week that's what i've been enjoying and what i would recommend that you look into if you have the means and room
2: uh, well what you don't know is that it was always my childhood dream to own a fainting couch Yes, so God. i like i'm so so jealous of you right now
1: you can come over and try it out and also can i just say i love that that was your childhood dream because you know a lot of children dream of being an astronaut or a firefighter (laughs) or owning a dinosaur but not you you dreamed of having a fainting couch which a is excellent and b is achievable you could achieve your dream
2: and peculiar child i love it same it's okay (laughs) Um it is you're right, it is achievable, and I'm really jealous of you right now
1: We'll come over I and and to, try it, but go ahead with your okay. recommendation
2: okay um uh, I was going to recommend uh the Ms Yeah videos on YouTube. Have you seen those? I have not so Ms yeah is a character who creates elaborate- who cooks elaborate meals inside her office. Uh, my favorite example is the one where she rewired the office water cooler. Her office is in Chengdu, China. And my favorite is the one in which she rewired the office water cooler in order to um, cook hot pot in the office water cooler. <laughs> <laughs> and, and just make that into hot pot. And she'll he'll spend the entire mini episode MacGyvering these incredible meals in the middle of her office. And then we'll just eat them sitting at the desk. And it's, it's the perfect mixture of self care and just passive aggressive contempt for your coworkers.
1: I love it. That's so good. But
2: but she's also nurturing herself and loving herself. And and it's a perfect expression of creativity. Wonderful. I, I just find you're really inspirational.
1: Yeah, no, that is an inspiration to us all, I think. Thank you for that lovely recommendation. No problem. Well, traditionally speaking, once we have given our recommendations, that does bring us to the end of the show.
2: Okay, well, thank you so much for having me on. It was really lovely talking with you. Thank
1: you for joining me. Um, Do you want to tell people where they could find you on, say, Twitter? Twitter.
2: Sure. Um, I'm on Twitter at lnatural.
1: L as in the letter L.
2: L as in the letter L. N A T U R A L E. There's an E at the end.
1: Right. Not l naturale. Um, oh, with an E. That
2: sounds so much better.
1: <laughs> well, isn't natural like in a musical direction as well?
2: I I believe it is. I believe mm-hmm. it is our surname is actually, it's, it's Italian for bastard. It's kind of like being named Jon Snow. It just, oh means somebody gosh. was an, <laughs> a, someone was a natural child. Your, Gioia is the same thing. If you meet someone with the last name Gioia, that means they were like a child of joy.
1: Wow. Um, but, and wow. Natural wow. means you
2: were a natural, you were a natural child. Damn. Um, so that's, that's my family name. That
1: rules. Thank you. (laughs) Thanks. Uh, Well, uh, thank you again. And I hope you're able to, uh, you know, even if it's not on a fainting couch, maybe sit back, uh, read a book tonight. And, uh, you know, take some time away from the horrors, the many horrors of the world to just read about some gay Frenchmen from several hundred years ago. That
2: that sounds glorious. Thank you, Merit.
1: Thank All you. Right. I will talk to you later. Okay, thanks. Bye. Bye bye.
0: Woodland Secrets is hosted by Merrick Kay and produced and edited by me, Nick Bravo. Woodland Secrets is a part of Stay Mean, the world's only podcast network. We're entirely listener supported. If you enjoy the show, please consider becoming a patron of Stay Mean at woodlandsecrets.co slash support. For as little as three bucks a month, you'll get access to a monthly newsletter and frequent bonus episodes of our shows. If you'd like to have a message read on the show, head to woodlandsecrets.co/slash messages. You can help people find out about the show. Please mention us on Twitter, we're at Woodland Podcast and at Stay Mean Co. Or rate and review us in iTunes. We really appreciate it. Thanks for listening. That's pretty good, right?
1: Yeah, that's fine.
0: Make something out of that. Um, Bazinga! Go make your your coffee. Um, Bazinga. Just uh, just for the record, bazinga. It's where it's not. This isn't in anything. <laughs> I know. I just want right? you You're to have to listen me to me saying bazinga. Bazinga, right. bazinga, bazinga. Thanks for that. Bye. You're
1: welcome. Bye.